It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Kriyoga Podcast. I'm here once again with a very special guest from Ireland, David McGraw. Um, today, we're going to be talking about some things that I'm not quite clear on. So I'll turn it over to you, David. That's right, Ryan. I have you here, and it's a pleasure, as always. Um, I'm your special guest, but I have the privilege of surprising you with uh, a topic, a theme, um, which we haven't yet discussed. Uh, I've titled it Concepts and Confusion. Um, I think that might speak for itself, but basically, um, I thought that we we could on this podcast just discuss some of the key concepts which are commonly referred to within um, Kriya Yoga and which are part of the practice and which actually form a, a fundamental part of our ability to move forward in our practice, but which can often cause, cause a lot of confusion. Um, so... <laughs> Before the podcast, I was thinking about, well, what, are the, what am I actually going to discuss here with Ryan? Because, you know, to your audience out there, I'm not uh, an experienced podcast presenter. Um, so I thought what we could do is I would present you with a concept, a term, because that's what a lot of these are. They're just terms, um, uh, but they denote a certain meaning. And so that maybe we could try and expand on what the meaning of each one of those terms is. Now, I broke it down into Sanskrit terms. And then I thought afterwards, well, you know what? Maybe we could look at some of the English terms too, or maybe we could do them side by side. Um, but just to give your uh, audience a bit of an, uh, an idea of what I'm working with here, it's literally a notebook with some scribbled down words uh, which have been grouped together and given numbers in terms of their priorities. So the first one here, if you're ready for it, yes. is yoga. What's the the yoga? concept or the definition of yoga? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, I think we can start with uh, the general uh, idea that, that most people put forth is that yoga um, is unification or, or bringing together of awareness. And um, it's important to clarify that because um, when many people practice yoga, they think of the postures, the asanas uh, with hatha yoga. But we have to remember that those postures, that practice is part of uh, the greater system, the Raja Yoga system, uh, which includes right living, living well, making good choices, um, pranayama, breath work, learning to turn, internalize your awareness, practice meditation, and then bringing to that state of samadhi or oneness where um, everything is experienced or realized or recognized as part of the whole and so, uh, the idea of yoga, it's also synonymous with that word samadhi, which is bringing together. And I think this is useful because many people, when they get involved in yoga or meditation, they kind of wander around thinking that they're separate from God or separate from the infinite consciousness or separate from the wholeness of life. And what they're trying to do is, or separate from spirit, and what they're trying to do is get back to it with that same kind of mythic or legendary idea of returning to the garden of eden or returning to paradise and um, really what yoga is doing 
is revealing that that unity which is always there it's like when people talk about why well, i want to know god i want to experience god and well, all you have to do is just sim- just look around because while it might not be what you imagine god to be the euphoric uh comparative to a drug-induced state well god is this god is the sunlight coming through the window god is the statue that it's shining on god is the chair that you're sitting in and and um I think that when we begin to recognize this in yoga practice, um, we are able to sit peacefully, experience life more peacefully, and then it, it's, it seems as if it seems as if everything is unified, as, as if everything makes sense, as if everything is whole, and um, that is that is the ultimate purpose of yoga. So when I think of yoga, I can't think of it in a sense of a concrete definition. I think of it more as a a a, a process or realization something that's 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 moving rather than something that's just like a a stagnant um statue or idol or ideal yeah i i I think it's very interesting to hear your answer you know i put you on the spot i'm asking you for a definition of yoga and we're all here listening to a kriya yoga podcast because we have an interest in practicing yoga under the kriya yoga tradition and also to experience yoga um, I was talking to an individual recently, and um, I just shared uh, from my own experience um, the idea that when we're listening to different teachers, they use usually choice language. They usually use a certain jargon, almost a certain vocabulary or terminology, which works for them in terms of defining what yoga is for them. And, you know, if you read their books, they'll paraphrase pretty much using the similar vocabulary. Then you move to a different uh, teacher or a different tradition, even they might go about using different vocabulary, different words. Um, and I asked, I, th- I just advised them, I recommended as a kind of a, an exercise to get in the habit of writing down in 20 words or less what yoga is for him, just as a means for him to be able to, instead of just listening and regurgitating terminology, to actually embody the words for himself so that it made sense for him. And obviously that would grow as his clarity grows. So I'm just curious now, and I'm putting a bit of pressure on you. Do you think you could define yoga in maybe two or three sentences? Um, yeah, possibly. Uh, or one, if you want. Yeah. Uh, so as of as of this moment, um, <laughs> the way I would define yoga, from from my understanding, is that um, yoga is the ability to exist in silence. That's what I would say. I think. And can I expand on that? Why, why I think that? Keep, keep it in your mind, the expansion that you want to give. But I yeah. think that's, that's key because, you know, I might ask you again in a year's time and you might give me a different definition. Right. But I think the fact that this is your definition for today as we're talking, you were talking about yoga isn't a fixed mark. I think that kind of, you know, just answers that. It just uh, um, gives a perfect example of that. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a great definition. If you'd like to expand on that, go ahead. Well, it, it's just in line with what you're describing there because, um you know, I began practicing Kriya Yoga in, in 2000, and um, what I thought yoga was then was uh, it was a practice, it was a series of meditation techniques, it was uh, a way of life that would lead me to profound wisdom and this amazing sense of connection to a power or a presence which was utterly beyond me. And for many years, I, I held that. And I felt that as I practiced, that I was getting closer and closer and closer to that. And, but it was always just 
barely out of reach. And, uh, and then just recently, so it's, it's, it makes sense. It, it's just recently that I recognized, wow, um, this isn't about being all wise and all knowing understanding. It's about being comfortable in silence, like being able to, to experience to just stop your mind and just be with with what is happening moment by moment. So it's it's not a state that uh, you're projecting into the future that continues forever. It's it's being right in that razor's edge, moment by moment silence. And it, it refers me back to the definition of yoga in um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is yoga. Chitta Vritti Naroda. Yoga is the silencing of the fluctuations in consciousness. And if you're able to abide in a state of silence, well, those fluctuations are gone. It doesn't mean that light that I'm looking at isn't still there. It doesn't mean that the feeling in my body isn't still there, but the fluctuations, the definitions, the concepts are, are, are silent. And so the reason I use that definition now is because after these years of practicing meditation and doing the best to live the life as I know it and making the mistakes and getting up and trying again and so on, that when I have those moments of silence and I can hold them, to me, that's yoga. So it, it is, it is, it is, yes, that is my definition now, which is different than it had been, you know, in, in years past. Very good. Uh, that's, it's insightful just to hear another person's definition after, you know, knowing yeah. that they've been applying themselves to the practice of yoga how well, they perceive yoga to be, you know, and and I, I use this 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 idea a lot, you know, and I, I had this feeling too that when when you begin practicing yoga and me meditation, that you're going to hit this supremely divine blissful state, and um, you, you have that described in, in in yogic literature a lot. And what I realized over the years was what what with that idea in mind, what I was chasing was really just like something you experience when you've got a hormonal high or something when you're, you're in a drug induced euphoria. And I think many people are chasing that thinking they're going to get it through the practices of yoga, that, that particular kind of idea when really that blissful state, and Mr. Davis Roy had talked about this a lot too. It's, it's, it's free of content. And so imagine if, if you don't need to do anything, you don't need to be anything. There's no stress or anxiety to perform, to change, to, there's just, now moment by moment well that is profoundly freeing and it's not a drug-induced euphoria it's not a hormonal high and 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 it requires the the discipline and the practices of yoga to kind of slide you into that <laughs> you know and so uh that's why it takes work too so i would also say yoga is hard work <laughs> yoga yoga is being able to abide in silence and yoga is hard work. There, that's my definition. <laughs> Very good. Mm -hmm. So that's the first concept. We've managed to work through that. But interestingly, the second concept, you know, you described there that yoga is often synonymous with samadhi. You were also talking about these blissful states. And so, yeah, without blabbing on too much, my next concept is samadhi. Uh, what's, how would you define or explain samadhi? Well, I'd probably define it in the same way since they are kind of synonymous, but I do have a, an interesting story to share. And it was, um, it was based on one of my interactions with one of the, uh, the, the two-year Kree Yoga apprenticeship students. Um, we sometimes get together one-on-one, 20-minute sessions over Zoom. And um, this student was telling me a story of how 
he went on vacation and he was able to let go of his worries about his, his, his family for a little while. He was able to not worry about his job or answering emails. He was away from Wi-Fi, so he couldn't be disturbed by that. And he said, you know, it was amazing. He said, once I let go of all, once I wasn't attached to all those worries and all those concerns, he said, it was almost as if the experience of Samadhi was natural. It was as if it was right there. And I, I think that's accurate because if we can remember a time when we were on a vacation or we were in, we were with someone that we love and that we trusted, and we didn't have to do anything, be anywhere, change anything. It was just, you didn't have to think about anything. And this I experienced often when I used to do, um, every Saturday I would do, um, I would, I would uh, recognize a vow of silence. And it was amazing how well that worked because after the few weeks of doing it, people stopped talking to me because I knew I wasn't going to talk back. And when people stop talking to you and stop expecting you to talk to them, the thinking process in your mind just goes away because you're not having, or at least I wasn't, having to think about what am I going to say next? What are we going to do next? So the 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 the, the noise, the the constant churn in the mind just naturally went down. And so in those days, it was much easier for me to experience that thought-free, clear samadhi state, as many people uh, describe it, because there was no need to engage the, the the change in the turmoil or the fluctuations. So I found that fascinating. Um, the other way I would describe samadhi uh, related to the Yoga Sutras is uh, Patanjali discusses a, a higher samadhi and a lower samadhi. And this has been a topic of previous podcasts, but I think it's worth repeating again and again and over and over. So I'm going to. Um, there's a lower samadhi, which is described as samadhi with support or samadhi with concepts. And samadhi is a oneness state. It's being able to experience one thing, whether that's your infinite consciousness, God, love, you name it, but it's, 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 it's focusing on one thing. And so samadhi with support, let's say we're looking at uh, a tree. And if we are looking at that tree, and all we're thinking, or Samadhi was thinking as well, and all we're thinking about is the bark of the tree, the leaves of the tree, the way the light shines through the tree or reflects off the, the grass below the tree. If we're just constantly redirecting our awareness back to that, well, we are practicing Samadhi with support. It's support of looking at something. It's support of thinking of something. But when we're looking at that tree, when we're only thinking about that tree, we're only focused on one thing. So that is a type of samadhi, and that is a lower samadhi, which creates a groove, which allows all these other distractions to go away. But in time, you begin to grow into what they would describe as a, a higher samadhi or a samadhi without support. That's when you can just see the tree and you don't have to remind yourself, oh, think about the bark. Oh, look at the leaves blowing in the wind. You don't have to keep telling yourself to think about the tree. There's just a natural flow of attention towards that tree. That could be samadhi without support because there isn't a need to continue to redirect yourself back to it. But the way that you get to the, the place of Samadhi without support is by continuously practicing samadhi with support. It like creates a groove or a momentum. It's just like now, after uh, 20, 21 years of uh, doing my best to think of, to read a little, meditate more, and think of God all the time. Um, 
now it's harder for me to not do that because I have the, the, the samadhi with support of trying to do that for so many years that naturally when I go to sleep at night, what do I do? I pick up my book reading about Kriya Yoga Saints and Sages. When I wake up in the morning, what do I do? I immediately think about meditating. When I'm sitting by myself, I reflect upon uh, spiritual um, truths or, or ideas or philosophies. Why why does that happen more naturally now rather than me trying to plot out a new Dungeons and Dragons game or think about what I'm going to do at the next uh, party in college? It's because I don't have, I have not given support to those things. So anyway, uh, that's the way I would kind of look at the idea of samadhi uh, as a, a oneness state. Uh, it's our natural states, the, the, the state of yoga, but there are also different variations of that. And we have to cultivate the lower stages so that we can eventually get to the momentum of the higher stages. And just as you're talking there, you use the, the words which I would use to um, describe yoga, I suppose, essentially. Like oneness is a term. If somebody asked me to describe yoga, I'd probably say oneness and I'd probably say beingness just being and for me in terms of samadhi as in just uh in order to keep the dialogue going here <laughs> um and for me how i when we talk about those two types of samadhi with support without support the way i have understood it is that um you know we can use our techniques as a means of developing concentration and then it gets to the point where that concentration is effortless but it's directed towards something tangible, a concept of some kind. And then the higher state is when we no longer need that tangible thing to focus our attention towards. We can just be and be, and that just experience of just being is where we're uh, effortlessly concentrated upon, you know? So then when we talk about beingness uh, and the idea of experiencing yoga or living in yoga or in a state of yoga is just being. And I find this really interesting in terms of when we look at animals, you know, <laughs> when you look at cows in a field and you see them there and they're doing their thing. Okay. They don't have the sense of self awareness that we have, but they are just being. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like being able to be, but without getting all caught up with the trappings of being all the other things that we consider ourselves to be, which we're not, you know, the mental processes, essentially, um, the identifications, but all the concepts. And that's why I find it very interesting now, because we're, we're talking about concepts here. We're trying to put definitions and concepts. And when we're sitting in meditation, none of these are really relevant, you know, in terms of actually having the experience right um, and it kind of leads me on to the the next concept i hope i'm not moving too fast for you here but it's just you know yoga is related to samadhi um and then yeah i know that you're i can see there you've got a a portrait of ramana maharishi which just as a little uh, <laughs> that's you, that's you, that's your gift remember well, you that's that the side note i was just gonna yeah. have because I, I was watching a youtube video of yours where you said you got two of them yeah <laughs> i didn't realize you got you two didn't know them. that yeah i remember yeah well that that's I what happened yeah. you, you you sent me one you yeah. sent me one and then i got it and um i believe i put it up in my my office at home so i have the exact same one at home and then you you contacted me and you said did you get my present and it had been so long since i got it i thought what present and so i yeah. said what present and then you sent me another one <laughs> so so i have two of these giant posters of ramana maharshi one at one at home and one at my office so i see them everywhere <laughs> well we can make it a thing that every christmas or every birthday i send you another you poster. send me another one yeah hey i would be perfectly fine with that 
what, what I was getting at idea <laughs> is that I know that Triyam Ramana Maharishi talked about Sahaja Samadhi, this state of Samadhi, um, which we know, we don't, I don't want to get caught down, caught up in that. What I'm getting at is the moksha, uh, mm-hmm. the, the concept of moksha. How would you define or describe that? <laughs> I would describe it the same way I described the last two things, <laughs> but but the, the, just for the sake of the conversation, <laughs> um, because uh, I think I think although we might laugh at it, yeah, I, yeah, I know yeah. there, there was a time that, that I definitely had my head was going in knots about well, you know, what, if Samadhi's yoga, then what you know, how does this? I can't even remember now, but I definitely know that I had challenges with getting my head around all these things. No, I, I understand. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not trying to laugh in a condescending way, but no, you know, no, I know that. that's that, that's sort of that's sort of what happens. Is that the once this is what happens? I mean, the more you practice, the less you see divisions in ideas or things. You know, you kind of see it as one thing. And so, the idea of moksha is liberation or freedom. Well, it, it's liberation or freedom from these changes because what most people and we're all guilty of this. I mean, even Yogananda and and, and Sri Yukteswar, they they start out as human beings as well, and so they were they were they had definitions, they had concepts that they were attached to. They 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 needed things to be a certain way spiritually or so on. And I remember that too. You know, I've told stories about how the first five to seven years of my life, I'm surprised that I kept any of my friends because I was so fanatic about uh, trying to get them to practice Kriya Yoga. It's it's the one true way, you know. And as time went on, I realized that that's not true. That's my way. And that's why I found it. It's your way. It's why you found it. It's Roy's way. It's Yogananda's way. Um, But liberation is free from defining yourself through these concepts. And it doesn't mean that you don't experience concepts. It's like um, early on in my own um, development, I thought I had to be completely free of, of anxiety and depression and anger. One time I realized, you know what? Being a human being means that you're going to experience anxiety, depression, and anger from time to time. The, the problem, the problem that people suffer from when they become neurotic about it, <laughs> I think that's the right term. We'll have to have you clarify that. Is when they become obsessed with it or define themselves by it. Mm-hmm. When sadness happens, and that's all they can do is be so fixated on sadness, and it's who they are, rather than it being like, you know, the storm cloud passing through the sky. The sky isn't holding on to that storm cloud. The sky is experiencing the storm cloud and then the storm cloud passes on and it's sunny again and then of course it'll get cloudy again so the idea of moksha is in my in my opinion i suppose is freedom from that which means that if you are free if you are supremely free uh then the idea is when um when concepts or activity arises in your awareness Moment by moment, you respond to it appropriately, and then it passes, and then you're able to be silent again. From a deeper yogic standpoint, moksha is that ability that you've practiced your meditation techniques. You've lived uh, a lifestyle which is supportive of allowing you to go within and be free. Because what a lot of people, the reason they can't meditate well is because they're still caught up in so many dramatic relationships or they're still attached to or addicted to, or they haven't done counseling on traumas that they've experienced. So when they, when they go to meditate, all they're really doing is trying to fend off all these distractions and all these attachments and all the, the stuff there. Well, when you, when you begin to experience moksha, it's like that just passes through you and you're not defining yourself by it. So then now you have the capacity and the ability to simply sit, be present 
or breathe or just hold your awareness on the, the fontanelle area or the crown of the head. And that is enough. And that is perfect. And so, you know, as we were talking about with our previous uh, ideas or concepts, you, you learn how to do that in meditation. And then you start experimenting with it when you're going for your walk or when you're typing your email or when you're talking to your spouse, you start practicing that ability to let go of everything else and just be there in that, that moment appropriately. And then you are free. Then you're experiencing moksha. Then you're experiencing liberation. So I'm sure there are all different kinds of subtleties and uh, stages and ideas that we could relate to this practice of moksha, but I think really it's just recognizing your innate freedom in the same way you mentioned Ramana Maharshi. Um, he knew he wasn't his body. And he and others, even Mr. Davis would say that the biggest uh, obstacle that we have in practicing yoga that might even be mentioned in the Yoga Sutras is the false identification with the small sense of self of the body. And so when um, Ramana Maharshi experienced uh, physical issues, he barely even noticed it because he was not identified, attached to it. He experienced freedom from that concept. And, um, and we can do this where you get to a point to where the things that happen in life, it doesn't mean that you're not engaged, doesn't mean that you're aloof. It just means that when something happens, okay, you deal with it. You don't let it define you. You move on. And the more you're able to do that, then the deeper you're able to go in meditation, uh, meditation proper, the practice, because now you turn your awareness within and you don't have all this uh, baggage holding you outward. So moksha is the ability in that sense to go within and abide there and stay there and enjoy it and be peaceful there and, and, and just abide there. That's probably the best word I can think of. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when we were giggling at the start about the, the overlap between yoga and samadhi and moksha and the actual reality that it does create complication and confusion. And then through our process of adhering to the practice, um, we get some insight into what it means to uh, um, internalize our attention and to uh, establish a state of concentration. But quite often, you know, it can get very caught up in the idea that we need to become really good at meditation, as in it's something which is like the formal practice is everything. The meditation is everything, but life in itself isn't considered really a practice as such. I know the yamas and the niyamas exist there, but I, I know that when I was involved in yoga and Kriya Yoga at the beginning, I gave a lot of emphasis on the idea of experiencing this state in meditation but what i what i like from the idea of moksha or liberation of consciousness is the idea that this you know even if you've never meditated in your life there, there might be some individuals like this I, i'm not sure if i've met any but there might be some individuals who've never med meditated a day in their life but maybe have the capacity to not be identifying with any aspect of the fragments of their consciousness i, I think that's probably unlikely but what I'm getting at is here is that meditation is the, uh, and, uh, a kind of a, the formal practice which goes side by side with the informal practice of our life where we're learning to have the same disengagement or dis yeah, disengaging with um, the movements which are occurring in life. Not that we're not in interacting with them, but just that we're not holding on to them and wanting to either you know, the attachment or aversion, wanting them to stay for longer or trying to get rid of them. 
Um, and so this leads me to wait, 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 before you go, oh, before you go to the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause what you just said brought up some, some interesting points since the idea of the, the formal practice and the informal practice. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking they learn the meditation technique and then that's it. Like for Kriya Yoga, the Kriya Pranayama and so on. Um, and the idea of moksha, it's, it's to experience freedom. Well, you, you, for moksha to happen, you have to do whatever it takes to experience freedom, which means that, and, and we've had this conversation, I know, uh, informally on our own when we're not doing podcasts and we're just, we've just visited and, and been talking, um, the idea of, of mental and psychological and emotional well-being. Well, if you, need, if you need to see a counselor or work with a therapist to work through stuff that you can't work through, that's just dug in and, and stuck, that you, you don't even have the objectiveness to see or to experience or have the tools to work through, well, you can try to meditate all you want, and it will benefit the body with relaxation. It will give you greater concentration. But if you haven't dealt with those things, you, you, you might still con consistently experience an underlying tension or anxiety or, or, or neurosis. That's, that must be the word of the day. Um, but but if, if, you are, if you are a yogi and you're practicing yoga and you know this, then what do you do? You go find someone to help you out. And that in itself, the counseling, the therapy is a method of experiencing moksha and liberation. And, and the reason I became so um, kind of passionate and interested about this, even though my uh, college education was in psychology, I kind of poo-pooed it and acted like it wasn't as important because I thought surely yoga should take care of it all. But it was my own experience of um, re-experiencing therapy and counseling um, that started to point out, wow, once I started to see the, the inner landscape and I had help from someone who could look from the outside in and use the skills and tools that they had, such as EMDR and, and somatic experiencing to get through those things, it was as if meditation became even effortless. It became effortless because I was not wasting all my energy or contending with all this unresolved stuff that was so far back there that um, I couldn't experience it or see it. And even when it came to the, to the front through meditation, I didn't know what to do with it because I didn't understand what it was. And so, by going through that process, that was an activity of experiencing moksha and liberation such that then the formal, the formal practice became almost effortless because mm. I already knew how to meditate. I already knew how to sit still. I already knew how to do the things that you're supposed to do as a yogi, but you, you resolve that and then moksha becomes um, easy. And I think that's true for health and well-being. Do the things which free you from your physical limitations. If you can, some things you can't, some things it's impossible and there's just karma and fate you have to accept and deal with. But there are so many things that if we if we attended to through uh, exercise or through uh, working with a counselor or a therapist or eating better or just trying to get rid of people who put so many obstacles in your life, you will find that it becomes effortless. And why don't we do that? Well, because we have some kind of weird hang up that's not allowing us to move beyond it. And we have to figure out what that is and accept our true nature. You know, all these spiritual teachers. They say that our true nature is stillness, silence, oneness, and so on. In the Bhagavad Gita, there is a statement that um, that uh, Arjuna was born to a divine destiny, and he needs it, it for him to act like uh, he should just drop his bow and be pathetic and, and depressed. Uh, Krishna says to Arjuna, "This is beyond. This is beneath you. You are of noble birth. Stand up, Arjuna, and and practice yoga." And we have to remember uh, the Bhagavad Gita 
it as an allegory for our own spiritual path. We are Arjuna. Krishna is the guru or infinite consciousness, the divine, which is there to help us, to guide us, to, to clarify our awareness. And to think that we are pathetic and depressed and can't do anything, that's like Arjuna just giving up. And we have this soul force, this soul power saying, you are born of noble birth, so stand up and do what needs to be done. And so, anything that we do, uh, everything that we do really, uh, is, is part of the practice of, of moksha and, and, and liberation. It's not just meditation, it's everything. It all, it all works synergistically, which is why we have the Eightfold Path of of, of uh, Patanjali, and it starts with the yamas and niyamas, and uh, again, ahimsa, truthfulness, non-stealing, brahmacharya, um, non-covetedness, uh, surrender in God. If we want to know if we're psychologically healthy or not, what do we need to do is just see, can we do those things? If we can't, then we need to start working on it and figure out why can't we, and that will help point us in the direction of where we need to psychologically heal, and then it'll be much easier for us to practice pranayama and meditate, and then it experience samadhi so i didn't mean to take you so far off course there but that's something i think is profoundly important and a lot of people miss in this whole uh, work of, of meditation i'm glad you took uh, I, I don't i wouldn't consider a diversion a diversion i think it was um actually something which is important to be said i think i know for myself as well when i began in yoga i thought it was going to be the be all and end all i thought it was going to uh solve all my issues make me perfect i thought i was going to sort me all out fix me dave, dave, david you are perfect i love you <laughs> you know what in this life <laughs> but, um yeah and then you realize and you know hopefully for people it's sooner rather than later if at all that that they they um they can see that yoga is the lifestyle yoga is the that experience like we defined at the beginning it's the being able to just be and just and that's and moksha is the being liberated of all the fragmentation that can occur in consciousness so that our consciousness is purified and we're able to just be. Um, and so I can move in different directions here, but you said a lot and I'm trying to decide which concept to go with next. Um, I think relevant to meditation and our, you, you know, you're talking about receiving therapy to work with what's going on at a deeper level uh, of our psyche. So I'm going to ask you to maybe refer to manas manas the mind uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so i love that term really because it, it, there's just so many levels of subtlety to it um, in a way it's where the idea of man came from man like like human humankind uh, how, how man was born and that's not to be uh, gender insensitive it's just like a, a human being we use we, we've used the term that way um, and when we think about uh, samkhya philosophy and even the descriptions within um, the holy science uh, Sri Gishwar defines this kind of experience of, of consciousness becoming more and more involved in, in nature. And we have uh, truth or sat, and then we have the om vibration where um, time and space and the, the sense of individuality, the atom comes into being. And all of this is, is the realm of the, the, the sons of God. And, and by that, they mean uh, those who, those that state of consciousness, that experience, which is able to fully and completely perceive the divinity throughout all creation. But then what happens is then manas, after a bit, there's some other things in between, but uh, then manas develops, which is what? Manas, the mind, the thinking principle. And, and what is that? It's the collection of ideas and concepts. The manas, the mind is a 
connection of ideas and concepts. For example, you know, you, and I'm not just talking about Dave, I mean, the people who are listening, uh, you think you are a certain thing. You think you are a human being that is wearing a certain kind of clothing that likes, you know, caramel butterscotch ice cream that uh, is in this relationship that has these likes and these dislikes. All that is, is a collection of concepts. When you are in deep sleep, you're not aware of that, yet you still exist. And, and when you're in that state of deep sleep, there is no sense of separation. There is an unconscious form of, of oneness or unification with the whole. Or when you're in a stupor or a trance, that'll happen. Um, and what yoga is doing is it's kind of working us back up through to where we recognize the concepts for what they are, just concepts. And then we're able to continue kind of rising above that to experience into the idea of the sons of God or the, the Om vibration or, or the, the, the stages of consciousness, which are more easily able to perceive um, the, the, the oneness of reality through, throughout all uh, experience. But it's manas, which causes us uh, all of the, the problem. And, and we, we can have manas, which is the thinking mind, which gets us more involved with definitions, or we can have, I think it's called the buddhi, B-U-D-H-I, which is that aspect of mind in a way, it's sort of hard to define, that is more interested in flowing upward towards, uh, toward this, towards this idea of, 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 of silence, of, of existing uh, without the concepts and the definitions. So that, that level of mind, this is what we're always working through, working on as human beings. And so um, what we're aiming to do is recognize it for what it is, let it go, and use it when we need to. For example, you need your mind to have a conversation. You need your mind to think about what am I going to do tomorrow? You need your mind to decide, am I going to go home and get the chainsaw out and keep churning up those bushes? Or am I going to go home and I'm going to work on this podcast that I, I want to uh, put out in two weeks? You need the mind for that. Um, but this is the, the reason the term manas is uh, a root or an origin of the term man, uh, as in humankind, is because animals don't do this. Um, uh, my microphone doesn't do this, but yet the animals and the microphone still exist. It's, it's the humans and their thinking capacity, which defines them, which is what has removed them from the garden of Eden. If you will, that story in the Bible of, of Adam and Eve. Well, um, do you, do you choose from the, the tree of life, the tree of, of, of good and evil and so on? Well, it's that moment when mind develops, because now you have the idea of this is good, this is bad, this is a concept, this is that, and so on. So, manas is that aspect of ourselves, which is all concept, is all uh, ideas. And even in Vasista Yoga, you know, we come back to this, this concept a lot. In Vasista Yoga, uh, over and over, uh, there's the idea that if you want to be free, all you have to do is let go of your concepts and your notions, your, your preconceptions. And if you do that, try it sometime. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Do whatever it takes to, at least for a few minutes, drop all of your preconceptions and notions and your, your, your concepts. If you do that once a day for a few years, you're going to be surprised at what you realize. <laughs> but that's what that's what meditation is supposed to do for you anyway. So I don't have an easy definition for, for manas um, other than I would say it is the thinking principle. It is the ability to uh, define and, and, and conceptualize things. So it's the, it's the root of this whole talk today. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not an easy concept to kind of um, sum up. And from my readings and, you know, uh, the exposure that I've had, different people will explain it in different ways and they'll give preference to it or emphasize different aspects depending on their school of thought or whatever it might be. Um, I've, I've always, um, not always, but recently uh, I, I've come to take... Uh, I believe it's the Aveta Vedanta definition where they divide mind into um, four aspects. Uh, so the sense mind, the deep mind, and then the aspect, which is the ego, the ego mind, the sense of individual self. And I heard this uh, uh, description of it being like it was compared to a factory where you've got these three sp- aspects of mind, the sense mind, the deep mind, and the ego mind. Um, but you also have the intellect mind or the, the capacity to discriminate. Um, but what's going on is the sense mind and deep mind is throwing in all these, you know, resources into the factory and the ego is going, yeah, this, no, not this, yeah, this, this, not this, and whatever. But it's all a bit chaotic, whereas the buddhi, the discriminating mind, is the actual boss. Um, but for some reason, the ego has gotten all the power. And so it's uh, it's making a mock of things um, because it can't actually decipher or tell what's actually of relevance and what's actually needed or not needed. And so through the practice of meditation, we're you know empowering ourselves and giving us giving ourselves that opportunity to discipline the ego to quieten down, but also f- we empower the buddhi to its rightful position as leader. Um, and and through that process, then we we're able to kind of discipline the different aspects of our mind. So ultimately the buddhi takes charge and then that will allow the, the revelation of uh, insight and uh, understanding. Right. And that's, that's what Sri is talking about in the Holy science. When he has that diagram where the, the manas is the arrow going down towards creation and the buddhi is the, the arrow going up towards uh, sat or, or sat chitananda, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Very good. And then I, I suppose as a, a continuation of that, when, when you were talking about, earlier you were talking about um, the psyche and our conditions and our living conditions, and now we're talking about mind. There's three concepts which I'm going to group together, and they're chunky, you know, um, but I, they're ones that are spoken about a lot and they can be, get confusing. And I know, I think you've talked about one in a recent uh, YouTube video, but the first is karma. The second is samskara, and the third is vasana. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I know that there's similarities here. And right, um, hmm. yeah, that that's a hard one for me because um, uh, I, I'm 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 not very particular. Okay, and. Um, uh, so I always liked uh, Ramana Maharshi's discussion when he was asked about um, Samkhya philosophy or the definitions of consciousness. And uh, he, would, uh, he was asked, you know, should we study these different principles of consciousness as just that basically like what we're describing, you know, the yeah. Buddhi, Manas, um, uh, all these things. And um, Ramana Maharshi came back and said, well, uh, do you, do you dig through the trash before you throw it out? 
uh, implying that at the end of the day, all these ideas aren't really going to matter. And but he was coming up from the point of just focus on what the self is, focus on what what this this um, infinite, timeless existence uh, experience is, and. Um, I've always liked that. And so I know there are probably many different subtleties between karma, uh, vasanas, and samskaras. And I don't know whether it's because I, I like Ramana Maharshi's approach of just, well, I'm going to throw it out anyway, so I don't really care, or if I'm just lazy. So I'm not particular, and I might just be lazy, but I do, I, I tend to, to pretty much clump all those things together because. Really, what they are is just um, the patterns. Yeah, I would say that's what they are. They are the patterns of how our consciousness is defined. Um, you know, I could think of karma, vasanas, samskaras as though, um, you know, we've had experiences in life and um, they've, they've given us preferences or they've given us fears or aversions or likes and dislikes. And so we might not know it. But we were interacting with someone and we're interacting with them in such a way because they remind us of a situation or we avoid something because it reminds us of a situation. Well, deep down inside, we've got the samskara or this vasana, which is from a past experience, which is coloring what we're seeing or what we're doing. And so when we practice um, uh, our meditation or when we practice Kriya Yoga, we just try our best to live moment by moment in that state of stillness. We are watching and we are aware of those um, as they come up. And then we choose to either let them go, process them, or pay attention to them. But ultimately, they become less, they become weaker, they become weaker because we're in the present moment and we're letting go of our, um, our sense of uh, uh, being controlled by them. The karma, I guess I could say, has a little bit different connotation to it because karma is the idea of action things which are happening and so uh, a karma is any activity that we do a kriya is an activity that we do and a karma is a result of that activity and we can sustain that so for example if i have the karma uh, to drink green tea i've done it for uh, 20 years and so now when i go to the uh, the coffee shop and they say what do you want i just blurt out tea because i've done it so long so that's a that's a karma it's a tendency it's a vasana it's a, a samskara that i have um, and then when i decide to drink the tea i'm acting so i'm i'm sustaining that principle of karma which means the next time i'm probably also going to uh, do the same thing. So, uh, karma, vasana, samskaras, in my mind, are really the habits and the patterns. Some are more obvious, some are more subtle, that define uh, the behavior of this seeming individual that we call Ryan or David or whoever's listening. So, um, I would like to defer to you because I think you are not quite as lazy and a little more meticulous about these types of things. So what would you say that the, the in one sentence is karma in one sentence, what is Vasna in one sentence? What is the samskara? Well, you know what? I, I, um, I might be interested, you know, in, in understanding and having definitions for each one of those, but I think it's very true or there's truth in, 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 well, obviously, there's truth in what Sri Ramana Maharishi said because he was an example of truth. But just in that idea that why dig through the rubbish uh, before you throw it out? It's uh, these con these terms and concepts they they pop up in texts, and I think that can raise curiosity, but it can also 
give the sense of, oh, I should know about them. I should be able to distinguish between each one of all of these and I should be able to talk about them. Um, I've heard another teacher being asked to describe them um, and he just, he just said, well, they're all karma. You know, essentially yeah. all karma. And I've heard Roy talking about it. Roy has usually refrained from using any Sanskrit terminology and just called them subconscious tendencies. Some of them are more dormant. Some of them are active. Some of them are latent, uh, as in they're in the deep mind waiting to, for the opportunity to pop up and, and voice, uh, voice themselves. You know, they're, they're all kind of expressive at different levels of the spectrum, basically. Right. Um, and, but the distinction you made between karma and the other two, samskara and vasana, I suppose that's probably the most important thing that we need to kind of be mindful of. Karma is the, like the planting the seed, and then the vasana samsara is the thing, are the other seeds that come as a consequence of, of the, the fruit of, the, of that action, of the karma. Right. We, we, we have a ripple effect. Well, if we look at, I mean, let's just look at the definitions. And this, this is why I, I have some uh, hesitation about, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, so one of the definitions that um, samskara uh, or samskara, mental impressions, recollections, or psychological imprints. Okay. Yeah. So stuff that's happened to you that's deep down in there, which colors how you see things. Yeah. Um, vasana. They say it literally means wishing or desiring, but it's used in the sense of subconscious or latent tendencies in one's nature. So maybe we could look at um, sanskara as the impressions, the memories of things, psychological imprints of what has happened to us. And the vasana are the intentions or the desires that come from that. But then we move on to the idea of karma, and that is said to be an action driven by intention. So a deed done, a, a deliberately done deed. So one is past experiences. The other is the intentions, the desires from, or the, the, the way you would respond from those past experiences. And the third one, karma, is the action, the, the expression of it in, in a certain way. And I think the idea of karma is important because many people this is totally off topic here, but I would just like to mention it. Many people ask the question, how can I help someone with their karma? And the first answer is, well, you can't because it's their karma, but in a way you can. And how is that? By not responding to it. That's how you help them with their karma, because that's how you help your own self with karma. When, when these vasanas or sanskaras arise and you don't let it you don't let it dictate your life, well, then you've weakened it a little bit. And then they arise again, and you also choose to resist and not go down that path. We've weakened it a little bit until it becomes weaker and weaker. Well, if someone's acting in, towards you in a certain way, um, and you don't respond, you don't sustain that activity, they'll eventually leave you alone. It's like that, that general idea of if you've got a bully, someone who's like picking on you or beating you up or, or giving you difficulty, well, the less you engage with them or you don't give them the, the result of crying or, or, or having that issue, then they, 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 they're not getting the attention, so they go away. So you can help someone with karma by being present with them, just letting them say whatever they want to say, do whatever they're going to do. And you don't facilitate it by, oh, yes, poor you, or let me give you attention. You just sit there and you be with them. So anyway, I know that's totally off topic, but I think it's important to, to, to clarify. So well, it, back it, it kind of, well, it, it falls under the, the whole topic of using our intellect to discriminate uh, between where we're going to place our attention and where we're not going to place our attention. You know, and sometimes uh, getting involved in other people's business is, uh, it's not really because of our discriminative intelligence, it's other aspects of the mind will, which will be influencing it. Um, right. 
I, yeah, there, I just it was interesting there. You looked up online to get the definitions of it because that's the thing, you know. If we're reading yoga texts, and even though we have a teacher, and even though we might be listening to their audios or watching their videos or reading their texts, there's just such easy access to uh, online definitions and YouTube yeah. videos and explanations. And I, I think that's you know the crux of the matter is just how do we define it ourselves and right. how relevant is it for us to have um, like uh, an amount of information where we're able to have a discourse on it? Because that's not necessarily the case. You know, the case is just that we, we have a degree of clarity so that we can you do our practice effectively and get on. Right. And, and going back to the idea, you know, the, the little chuckle that we had about uh, defining things. Um, I, I think it's important to, to remember too, that um uh, like you, I'm sure, in the beginning, I thought I had to know what every principle meant in yoga. I, I thought I had to study the yoga sutras and understand every little nuance of every Sanskrit term. I had to, you know, determine what is sahaja samadhi versus this, these other kinds of samadhi. I, I, I felt I had to know all this stuff. And, um, and for years, I, I did that. And I realized that while now I personally don't care anymore because it doesn't matter to me, the words are just words. Um, but early on, I needed them because they kept me, because I was more of a mental person at that time, they at least kept me in the game. They kept me thinking about yoga. They kept me being intentional. They kept me um, wanting to know more. But then again, as you know more, you become less caught up in the words or the definitions or, you know, that that kind of a thing. So, uh, I think it's very important that if people do want to explore the definitions and the concepts and it it is of interest to them by all means do it because that is something that's keeping you engaged in the process but be all right if as time goes on you lose you 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 don't need that to do it anymore you know it's like you don't need you don't need the guide anymore you're able to just simply continue in that state without having to be very specific in your words and your terminology. I mean, it is important to be intelligent about how you use words, but um, you know, if you would have talked to me 12 years ago and you would have said, let's have a discussion on philosophy. Oh yes, that'd be wonderful. Let's talk all night long about philosophy. Now I do enjoy doing it on podcasts and so on, but if we're just out and if I was with you and we were, you know, hiking through the mountainside or are there mountains in Ireland? Those hills. Okay. If we were, if we were trekking through the hills in Ireland and you wanted to talk about philosophy, I'd be like, shut up. (laughs) <laughs> let's just let's just go on a hike <laughs> so so I, I, there is there is there is a time and a place for everything and there's there's no reason to to not do what you need to do to keep you going to keep you interested so i think that's important to state yeah like you're bringing to mind i did a video series on youtube on samadhi i think just referencing the different different stages of samadhi as outlined by patanjali and the yoga sutra you know but at the same time, they're only they're, it's it's only as useful as we need it to, uh, as we need it. You know, when when we're at a point in our meditation practice, we can't always be. It's there's a time to let go of things. There's a time to kind of just see the the purpose of something and then let it go. And even in the Yoga Sutra, we can see how there's there's almost an evolution in the teaching that what has been said at the beginning. Is, is that that's the core of things. Um, and then as we're moving through, it's kind of just, if you didn't get it at the start, here's some, it's some more, and here's it some more, and here's some, it's kind of, um, 
even when we're talking about this, we're giving our definitions, our interpretation, our perspective, um, but there's no absolute answer to all of these things. And I suppose that's what it comes back to is just kind of trusting your own intuitive knowing. Um, and so even though people provide frameworks, even though we've got concepts to help guide our way along um, to act as a support and a measure of how we're doing, ultimately it gets to a point when um, we need to be clear. So we have to let go of stuff, including right. concepts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the, what's that? We're going to say something, you know, I was going to ask you if you wanted any more concepts. Maybe maybe one more, maybe one more, but, um, uh, you know, some of, some of the most clearest, um, peaceful, aware people I know have no understanding of yogic philosophy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, some people in my life I know who they've met it, they meditate, they're interested in meditation and they're just good people. They care about the planet. They care about others. They essentially live a yogic lifestyle. But if I would ask them, what's a vasana, what's a samskara, what is, you know, adrida yoga or adrida karma and these types of things, they would have no idea what I'm talking about. And so uh, those, the, the reason I don't spend a whole lot of time being too concerned about it is because what I've observed is the people who are doing their best to live a good compassionate passionate life, who are doing their best to uh, just practice meditation, yoga, to experience inner stillness. Um, it's, it's that simple. And, and uh, I've just always been so impressed with, with my friends and, and, and so on, whom, who, who didn't go through all that uh, rigmarole, I guess you could say, that I went through of trying to like study every angle and, and define every word. And I'm like, wow, I, I feel like, why did I have to do all that? Yeah. But, but I did because I did, because for me, it was necessary. I don't know why, who knows why, but it was. Um, so it's just important to remember that, um, you know, uh, the reason I'm saying this is because uh, many people I, I've experienced have been very judgmental of, of their yogi friends who aren't so up on every sutra or on every principle of yoga. They act like, oh, well, they must not really know what they're doing when <laughs> they probably know a lot more of what they're doing. Uh, so yeah, we need to do what we need to do for ourselves and not worry about what other people are doing, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and the information and the knowledge that we're gaining is to assist us in the practice, not to hinder us. <laughs> right, and get exactly. Trapped in delusional state that we have it all figured out. Yeah. Yes, that's for sure. <laughs> I can give you another concept, but if I do, um, just bear in mind, it will be hefty. It's a, it's a big one here. Okay. All right. I'm ready. This will be the I, final. I, I'm sure you'll be well able to talk about it. Uh, Let me stretch a little bit. <laughs> get, the, get the stretches in. Uh, you've kind of actually alluded to it when you were talking about Sankhya and you were talking about um, the evolutes. And, but the concept is Purusha, Prakriti, and Ishvara. Ooh, yes. <laughs> that is another good one. Um, <clears throat> what makes this hard? Well, okay, let's just, let's just go with it. Uh, the idea of Purusha. Some people define this as the self or consciousness or spirit. Um, when we, that's a hard one to pin down because you can't see, you can't see the self or the spirit. You can only be the self and the spirit. And that, that's the purpose of meditation to where you are able to uh, abide again as the self. And when you're abiding as a self, you are free of concepts and you can see concepts, but you can't see what can see the concepts. 
Mm-hmm. So, so you're going back to that place of what is seeing the concepts. The only way you do that is through being. So the idea of Purusha is this, this self. And some people define it as like an individual greater self, but really it's just the self of us all. Um, Prakriti, well, Prakriti, I've always had a little bit of difficulty with this one because it's uh, sometimes said to be nature um, or the, the source from which everything comes. But in my mind, the source from which everything comes is the self. Uh, there's a chant that I love. Um, let's see. Well, I can't remember the, the, the Sanskrit Spirit part of it. Yeah, yeah. But what's the, the Sanskrit uh, that comes after it? Spirit and nature dancing together. I mean, I, I did this on the podcast. <laughs> I should remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Okay. So it's the idea of spirit and nature dancing together, and, and yet they're one. And um, so there's spirit which perceives nature, and there's nature which exper- which uh, kind of is the, the vessel for, for spirit. And so I would say Prakriti is nature. It is... Uh, it is the, that which can be experienced. So, in a sense, it is the source of the source of, of everything that we can perceive. Um, and what was the other one, uh, Ishvara? Ishvara, yeah. Yeah, Ishvara is another one which has I have some difficulty with because it's often translated as the Lord or the the Lord of yeah. the universe or or God understood as like the the great controller of the universe. Um, but when I think of the idea of Ishvara, it's more of like the uh, the intelligence or the principle through which all this stuff happens. I mean, the way that we're able to uh, communicate across thousands of miles of ocean, something had to be there, an intelligence had to be there to create a structure, this computer, your computer, the networks, the, uh, the microchips, the electricity moving through it to, to make all that happen. It took some kind of intelligence. And, and that took uh, what millions of years of evolution for the human organism to be able to conceive of what the atom is. And that took uh, billions of years of evolution from uh, a protoplasm to growing through, you know, slimes to fish, to birds, whatever, however uh, evolution happens. So when I think of Ishvara, well, yes, I think we can think of it as this personalized idea of God. To me, it's more of a, an intelligence which is beyond our conception, beyond our capacity for reason that has allowed all of this to be as it is. Um, so, yeah, those are those are very uh, difficult um, terms to define, but th- that's probably as close as I can get to using words. <laughs> yeah, like from my research on the topic. Uh, Sankaya puts forward Purusha and Prakriti as those two aspects, um, but doesn't talk about Ishvara. Ishvara comms from, um, I'm not sure where, Vedas, I'm not sure exactly where, but the way I, I think about it then, uh, you know, Purusha is that capacity to witness, to see, awareness, awareness <laughs> itself, conscious awareness. And then Prakriti is everything which is um, manifested in whatever form. Mm-hmm. And suppose the two are always entangled because the, there's always some degree of intelligence or something acting through manifestation in order for it to exist. And then the way I see Ishvara is just as a way of describing everything, <laughs> like right. the absolute reality. Like it's, uh, and it's beyond our conceiving. It's, uh, but and Purusha is the capacity to maybe recognize within ourselves that at a, uh, beyond all our concepts, when we're just being, uh, when we're just existing as conscious awareness, then we are Purusha. Once we have an interaction with a concept or with a thought or with the body, then we're engaging with Prakriti. Mm-hmm. But I see Ishvara more as being 
okay, there's no bodies, there's no you experiencing your purusha. <laughs> it's just, there's just absolute reality. It's the whole thing. And that's the way I just think of Ishvara. I suppose yeah. other people will see it as God. Um, but yeah, they're, they're interesting concepts because uh, it, it, there is it a lot to do with where you're coming from, especially from a Western point of view and what you've been culturally or um, even through your family or whatever you've been, what concepts you've grown up with. These other concepts can uh, uh, have a taint, be tainted. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that takes us right back to the beginning. I mean, with the idea of, um, you know, if we describe Ishvara as the Lord of the universe or God, well, someone who's been raised in uh, uh, Christian upbringing, which was not so healthy minded, um, they're going to not feel good about that. And so you try to, you try to talk about the Yamas and Niyamas and Ishvara Pranidhan, where you're surrender to God, surrender to the infinite. Well, they're going to have some resistance to that, but that's necessary for yoga practice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the, the, the fascinating part about it all. And then it takes us all back to the beginning again of silence. I mean, if, if we live our life so that we can begin to catch those glimpses of silence and train ourselves to exist in silence, well, in silence, there isn't going to be an Ishvara. There isn't going to be a Purusha. There isn't going to be a Prakriti, a Manas, none of those things. There's just going to be what is silence. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think, you know, kind of referring back to Ramana Maharshi's approach, why not just go straight to that and see what happens? You know, um, if you need them to get you there, fine. But in the end, it's, it's the, the point is not to know more words. It isn't about to know more concepts. It's to be able to exist in that state of moksha or samadhi or yoga and, and be in that, that silence. <laughs> yeah. And there's something very profound in that, isn't there? Because it's, it's just our tendency as we're still relating and engaging with the mind in, in, in the way that we've become familiar to do. Um, we just want to acquire knowledge. We want to get all the, we want more concepts. And yeah. want to, but that's part, that's part of the problem. Yeah. Because, because if, we want, if we consider that diagram from the holy science again, the manas, the more manas thinks and the more manas defines, the more we get involved in nature. Mm. And, and then this is, this is the, the hardest part. This is why I think so many people have difficulty really practicing yoga is because they, they do that in a way. And really the practice of yoga is going the opposite direction. And, and, and they have a hard, well, I have, others have too, I'm sure, have a hard time with it because how can you just let go of all of that stuff? And essentially that's what it's really calling you to do is to, is to let go of all of that. And, 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 and to practice silence in every moment. Well, that doesn't mean only practice silence when you're meditating. That means that if you're just bored out of your mind, you know, mowing the grass or mowing the lawn, well, what, what you're being called to do is to be silent in that moment, no matter what's happening. And people rebel against that, or the mind rebels against that. Or when something terrible is happening in your life, what's the issue? Well, we have to make it better. We have to fix it. Well, what if you do your best while maintaining a state of silence? Well, that doesn't feel right to people because if there isn't a sense of struggle, it's as though um, they're, not, they're, they're not being true. They're not being engaged in, in what's actually happening there. And that is the hard part about at least in my experience, trying to explain that and even do it is moment by moment, remaining in that state of silence in whatever is going on. That is this, 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 this practice of yoga. And it's not getting somewhere. It's not doing anything. It's not making yourself more spiritual. It's not changing anything on some profound cosmic way because the cosmos is perfectly fine the way it is. It's 
can you abide in that silence moment to moment? And, and it is so simple yet so hard. Yeah. It's so simple yet so hard because people want more. Well, stop wanting more <laughs> because then what they do is they go down the rabbit hole of, Oh, I'm just not going to do anything. You know, I'm, I'm not. And, and then things do get worse. So it's that balance between being appropriate. And, that, and that's why I think that if you live the yamas and niyamas, this, this, is, this is when that makes sense. Because if you're living the yamas and niyamas, you are taking care of everything you're supposed to be taking care of. You are practicing brahmacharya. You are doing all these other things, which means that if you are established in those, then you don't have to worry about making things better because you're doing the best you can. Yeah. And then you're just riding that silence. The, the problem comes in when no one does the yamas and niyamas. And then, of course, everything just goes to shit. And they wonder, well, see what happens when I just be quiet and don't do anything. But that's that dance that we have to, that's that dance that is yoga uh, practices as we know it, I think. That's I, I, I feel like I could run off with a lot more things to say in terms of that, but you've hit the nail on the head, you know, it's uh, uh, yoga. As we go back to, as we, we go back to the very beginning, it's just, it's defined as union and it's just, there's just one unified reality taking care of itself. And our place in it is pretty much um, just to allow it to flow, to allow it to just keep going and allow its expression. Um, yeah. And so, well, you, you know, a lot. you know, you have a, a YouTube channel, so you could just like in this podcast and go then do a discussion on whatever you were going to run off with in that. that. <laughs> <laughs> you give me homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was. Okay. I, I had a question that came to my mind there. I, uh, when we were talking about art earlier, and I feel like this might be an interesting way, a lighthearted way to finish up the podcast. Uh, for the people listening, because it's, you know, there's been some very heavy concepts. You're wearing, when I was talking about art and uh, and I was going through that uh, uh, earlier, we were talking about art and uh, we were relating it back to teachers and all that. I won't go off on a tangent, but basically I recognize that you are wearing the same colors, more or less. I can see colors in the shirt and the t-shirt as the landscape picture behind you. It has the same tone of green. The brown is a little bit not so different. Maybe in real life it'd be closer. But what's the picture from behind you? Is that a picture you took yourself or was it on the wall when you came in? This is a picture from the Dollar General store. <laughs> All right. <laughs> when I was, uh, I thought I wanted to decorate my office. And so this is just a, a printed, probably $3 uh, picture that I found at a, a, a local store, which is, is not very expensive, but I liked it because I, I do like nature and I do like, uh, I, I like nature and I like pictures of nature. I'm, I'm not the type of person that likes, you know, the, the streak of purple across uh, a canvas and that's art. I don't get that at all. I don't understand that. To me, that's something I could do. But when I see, when I see pictures of nature and I see it done well, um, that's what inspires me. So that, that's what that is back there. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to do another video series on what is art. But anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the picture is very kind of, I thought you might have taken it because it's your style. I've seen pictures that you posted in other places and that you, you like the rays of the sunlight. Yes, exactly. For some reason that always gets me like there's a, you've seen it uh, well on my Instagram page and on the, uh, the Mahavatar Babaji Garden of Faith book. Yeah. There's a, the sun streaming through. Well, this is my backyard. And what I love is every spring, this is what my backyard looks like every morning because there's a little bit of mist and then the, the sun comes through and strikes it. I, I always liked looking at light rays. I've always liked 
watching the sun come through uh, curtains or, or blinds. I don't know why, but for some reason for me, that's always, or, or watching light reflecting off of water, like on a lake or a stream. To me, that is the most beautiful thing. So that's why I like that stuff. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, now when your audience, uh, you know, when people are watching YouTube videos, because this is a podcast, they can't see it. But when they watch the, your YouTube videos, they'll see this picture. And they will they'll, know. They'll, they'll, they'll feel, you know, it won't be something they can have doubts about. Or <laughs> yeah. I've ruined, I've ruined their imagination. <laughs> now they have a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. Well, very good, Ryan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, um, you know, I, I didn't get to talk about any of the English uh, termed uh, concepts. We'll have to do a podcast at some later point in relation to them. Yeah. But uh, I think there's enough food for father here. Uh, yes. For people, yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to, to do this. And I'm sure we'll be in touch again in a, a few weeks or a month or so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take All care, right, David, you take care. Bye-bye. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.